preach about the Pope being the Antichrist and how to pay your pastors. But uh, that's okay, brothers. I understand how it's working. I get it. I've, uh, I've clicked now as to why I was invited to come and do this conference for you, brothers. But it's, it's a joy to be here. It really is. And I'm really enjoying myself. And I'm very thankful for the fellowship. Just before we get started, I want to just plug some books. Uh, all Christians should have a library uh, of Christian books. Um, and some of us have larger libraries, some of us not so much. I would encourage you, if you're a Christian, build your Christian library, but read your books. Don't just have a library that looks good and you don't read them. Um, I went to the book uh, table and I took a couple of titles. One uh, that really follows on at the end of uh, Pastor Ed's uh, address to us already, church membership. We use this one in our own congregation uh, for everyone who comes into our membership. You're meant to read this book before the class. Uh, not everybody does, of course, but you get it then when you come into our membership class as people apply for membership. Uh, this is a really helpful overview of what it means to be a church member, uh, some of the things that Pastor Ed really touched on today. Um, one of the things I encourage my congregation to do is small books like this. Put it in your bag, take it to work, read a chapter at lunchtime, and in a week you'll have read the book, and then you've done it. You've got one book down. Uh, sometimes we can, you know, if we're not great readers, we can be intimidated by the idea. These are great little books to uh, use and learn from. This is one of my favorite little books on prayer. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be up in Redding, California next weekend for a conference. I'm doing a conference on communion with God. One of the texts that I've been, uh, I'm going to recommend to the church up there is this one. Uh, prayer, how praying together shapes the church. This is an exposition, really, of the Lord's Prayer. Most of us uh, should have memorized the Lord's Prayer. We should know the Lord's Prayer. But do we realize, actually, it's a model for prayer? When you understand all the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, you understand it's a bit like the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments covers every sin you could possibly uh, commit. Uh, the Lord's Prayer covers every kind of praying you could possibly do if you understand all the petitions properly. And this is an excellent little overview. If you want to get your prayer life kicked off again, if you want to get uh, revived in your soul, I encourage you to read this little book. Uh, again, you could take it to work with you, meditate on one chapter uh, every day or just a chapter a week. You'd be through it fairly quickly, uh, but you'd be revived in your soul about communion with God, uh, which is so important for us that we would know the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in our lives uh, through fellowship with Christ. So prayer, excellent little book. I'll put them back. I promise I won't steal them. I already have them. Um, but there you go. I would encourage you to visit the book table. Uh, there is much to consider there for your uh, personal libraries. If you have a copy of the Word of God with you this morning, I invite you to turn, first of all, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. What we have here is the apostle speaking to the church at Ephesus. This is more than likely a, an epistle that was read amongst a number of churches. Um, he's encouraged them in chapter 4 uh, towards unity in the church and to walk uh, worthy of the calling with which they've been called. He reminds them of the fact that there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all. And then he says this in Ephesians 4 verse 7, 
But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he, gave him, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But seeking the truth and speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is a joy for us to gather together today to enjoy fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. We rejoice that we have the opportunity to spend time today in Your Word, considering Your instruction to us as Your people, and in particular, as we think through the subject of the church and its many different aspects, we thank You, Father, that You have not left us to guess with regards to how we might order our lives under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray now that as we turn to Your Word, that You would come by Your Spirit. We pray that You would instruct us, that we would be more fully clear in our minds and in our hearts as to what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be members together of the body of Christ, and particularly in this hour, Lord, what it means to relate to those over whom You've placed us, uh, over whom You've placed pastors and teachers to be our shepherds. We thank You and we bless You, Lord, for the gift of pastors. We pray now that You would help us to understand their role in our lives and our responsibility to them, that You would be glorified, that we would be transformed by Your grace, and that Your church would be established in the maturity of grace that You desire. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastors are a gift to the church. Paul tells us here in Ephesians chapter 4 that they are given to her by Christ, who is the head. Churches are blessed if they have Christ-given pastors in their midst. They ought to rejoice, because not every church enjoys good, faithful pastoral care. During the 17th century in England, if you were a Reformed and non-conformist 
pastor, nonconformist, meaning you did not adhere to the order of the Anglican church that was being imposed by the king. It was a dangerous calling to be a nonconformist pastor. After the Cromwellian Republic collapsed in 1658 and Charles II returned to claim the English throne once again in 1660, laws began to be passed for the next five years that would result in over 2,000 pastors being ejected from their churches. 2,000 pastors. A small country like England. It wasn't long before those pastors having been ejected from their pulpits, were banned from being within five miles of their church buildings. Now, for us, five miles isn't far. You jump in the car and you're off in five miles in five minutes, right? But back in England, where there were no cars and you had a horse maybe, and you probably walked most of the time, a five-mile radius was a, a significant area around your church. As a result of this ejection as a result of this ban, severe hardship fell upon those who were called to pastoral ministry. Their financial support, which was originally from the Church of England itself, with state approval, was immediately cut off. And there were no social welfare programs for which they could draw any kind of income. Pastors were cast into poverty literally overnight. Some of the accounts of them landing in prison and having their families to come and attend to them are heartrending, even to the point where you read that some of them and their families simply died in prison because no one took care of these men. You see, when the beast and the false prophet of the book of Revelation, the political system and the religious system that is anti-Christian, when it rises up to go after the true church, what you discover is that it goes after the leadership first. It goes after the pastors first. Those who are going to preach the Word and teach the Word and shepherd the flock and cause the church to mature in grace and to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the ones that the devil is going to try to take out first because he knows if you take down the leadership, you take down the church. And so by 1677, and if you remember last night I mentioned to you, that the 1689 Confession was really written in 1677. By the time 1677 came around, 17 years of Charles II being on the throne, nonconformist pastors were suffering immensely, continuing to be persecuted, continuing to be imprisoned, continuing to be oppressed. You know the story, don't you, of John Bunyan? John Bunyan was a nonconformist pastor. He spent 12 years in Bedford jail. Of course, one of the great blessings of his imprisonment was he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Next to the Bible, probably the best-selling book in the world. But nonconformist pastors were living in poverty. They were living 
under persecution. They were imprisoned. By 1677, everything was looking dark and bleak and lost and hopeless. However, the church was still in existence, and the church was still standing against the evil one. And the spiritually minded churches in England recognized that what they needed for their pastors was a new way of providing for them. They couldn't depend at all upon the state that, that had utterly failed. Who was it then that was going to look after their pastors? Who was going to support their pastors? Well, the simple answer, of course, is it was the church itself. It was the people themselves. And as a result, they came up with this statement that we have in paragraph 10 of our confession. If you have the little booklet that you were given last night, I want us to read this, and I want us to think about this, because it's really this that I want to turn your attention to this morning as we consider this question, what is the membership's responsibility to the pastors? Because right there in chapter 26 of the, uh, the 1677-1689 confession, our forefathers have written down for us clear instruction to guide us regarding this very question. And here's the issue for us as the Christian church. If our forefathers have already looked at this and thought about this and addressed this, it's the height of arrogance for us to think we can disregard it and just reinvent the wheel. That's everything that's wrong with modern America right there. That's modernity. That's secularism. We who are the Christian church know that we have a rich heritage of saints and a rich heritage of God's blessing the nations, and we know that the church has suffered before, and it's asked these questions before, and it's answered them. And here in paragraph 10, we read really basically two things are set out here regarding the responsibility of the church to their pastors. First of all, we have the duty of the pastors to the church. And notice what it says, the work of pastors is to give constant attention to the service of Christ in His churches in the ministry of the Word and prayer. They are to watch over the souls of church members as those who must give an account to Christ. Now, notice, that's the responsibility of the pastors. There's a lot there. I'm going to talk about it in a moment as a preamble, as it were, to what we're going to think about. The churches to whom they minister, now it's the responsibility of the churches, must not only give them all due respect, but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability. They must do this so their pastors may have a comfortable living without having to be entangled in secular matters, and so they can show hospitality to others. This is required by the law of nature and by the explicit command of our Lord Jesus, who has ordained that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Now, I told you the historical context of this because it's important to understand that when we're reading a historical document, we understand the historical context in which it was written. Why did they write this down? Because they knew only too well the fact that pastors needed support if they were going to do their work. That's really the sum issue here. 
right? What is the responsibility of the membership to its pastors? It is to make sure that they're freed up to do the work of the gospel. We could summarize it in that way, right? We see here the duty of the pastors is addressed very clearly. What is the duty of a pastor? Is it to always be at the end of the phone when you call? Is it always to answer your text the moment you send it? Is it always to do what you want them to do for you? Of course not. I'm old enough as a pastor to remember almost no internet. Can you imagine that? I remember CompuServe. I remember dial-up. Right? Click, click, click. I remember it, right? I know I don't look that old, but I am. I remember when people had to actually use a landline to call me, and they couldn't just text me and expect that I was just waiting for them to send me that text because I had nothing else to do, right? We're bombarded now, aren't we? There's a multitude of ways. I mean, parenting in the internet age is a nightmare because your kids could have 52 different ways they're talking to people all over the world and you only know of two of them. It's really challenging. But we who are pastors, we have a particular role in the church. We have got to understand this, and it's important that you as church members would also understand what's the role of your pastors. Well, here we have a great summary of it. We're to give constant attention to the service of Christ in His churches. Now, let me just make it clear what that is saying and what that's not saying. The service of Christ in His church not the service of you. So I always remind my congregation, I am here to serve you for Christ's sake, not for your sake. I'm here to serve you for Christ's sake. Now, if I serve you for Christ's sake, you're going to be fine, and you're going to do well. But sometimes there's going to be a clash, a clash of what you want me to do and what Christ would have me to do. And we need to have that conversation. And we have to make the distinction because it's not necessarily the case that every church member is always perfectly just wanting the will of Christ to be done. And as pastors, we have to address that. We have to remind them of that. The confession tells us, the Scriptures show us, right, that the, serve, that the, the job of a pastor is to give constant attention to the service of Christ in his churches. Notice, in the ministry of the Word and prayer. One of the challenges I've found over the years as a pastor is to keep my study time my study time. I try to train the congregation to tell me, unless you're dying, try not to call me in the morning because I'm trying to study so that I can feed you on Sunday. And you don't want me to turn up with a half-baked meal and you're not really going to enjoy it, right? You want to make sure that you're protecting your pastors at that level, right? That they're, they should be in the study unless they have to go to a bedside if that necessarily is the case. And of course, if someone is dying, that it takes a priority. I have no problem with that. I've always said that to my congregation. If, you're, if you have an emergency, and this is the emergency, the emergency isn't that your cat is missing. The emergency isn't that your dog needs to go to the vet. I'm not a cat hater or a dog hater. But really, I don't need to know about that. That's not really my problem, right? That's your problem. Just as if I have a cat or I have a dog, I'm not going to phone you, right? The reality is, however, that if you need ministry of the Word in a deathbed situation, of course a pastor 
can come and be there and should be there for his congregation. I've been at the bedside of many who have gone uh, from this world. But here's the reality that we are to be giving ourselves constantly to the ministry of the Word and prayer. And so uh, we need to be in the study. We need to be in prayer. We need to be given time to do that. We need to guard our time in order to do that. Why? Because then we will be able to instruct the church and to teach the church and to lead the church according to the Word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us because we're walking with God. And it's so important to understand this when it comes to the duty of your pastors. If your pastor is out on the golf course every morning, you've got a problem, right? If your pastor's sitting what, binging on Netflix all the time, you've got a problem, right? You probably should remove those pastors. But if your pastor is giving himself to the Word and to prayer, then you want to protect that time for him. You want to protect that time for him. You want to make sure that the pastor gets time to do that, which is his, to be his constant attention, the service of Christ, to mine out from the Word of God what it teaches so that he can pass it on to the congregation that the mind of Christ might be in the church. And the church might, as Paul says here in Ephesians, grow up into maturity. We don't want to be cast about with every wind of doctrine we want to be growing up together in the faith for the glory of God, that we might be able to stand in the evil day in which we live. And so the duty of pastors is laid out very clearly here at the beginning of this paragraph so that the church would be reminded then of what its duty is to the pastors. Because you need to know what your pastor's meant to be doing if you're going to ever be convinced of why you need to support him of why you need to fulfill your duties, your responsibilities. That brings us then to this issue of the duty of congregations to their pastors. Pastors are not omnipresent supermen. I mean, Rolo's close to it, but not quite, right? But the reality is that sometimes we can think that your pastor is omnicompetent. My congregation are only too aware how utterly incompetent I can be. You ask my wife, she will give you an even bigger list of how incompetent I can be. But pastors are not business executives. They are not psychiatrists. COVID has just passed, and we told our church, listen, the last thing you want to start doing is asking me for medical advice. Pastor, should I take the vaccine? Pastor, should I not take the vaccine? Pastor, is it not the plague? Pastor, is it not going to kill us? I've got no idea. I've got no idea. I'm, I'm like you, right? I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist, right? I've got no idea how the pharmaceutical industry works, though I'm very suspicious. But here's the reality. I'm going to try and stay in my lane, and trust the Lord, and recognize that I'm not a business executive, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not a lawyer. Pastor, what do you think I should do here? I've got no idea. We're not to be politicians. We can have a sense of humor, but we're not to be comedians. We are to be ministers of the Word, and men who pray for the church, because we're called we're called to watch out over the souls of the church. 
That's the whole idea of overseership, right? Episcopos is the word from which we get bishop, right? And it's the idea that we're to watch over the church. How are we doing? Where's so-and-so today? Why is so-and-so not here? Haven't seen so-and-so for a while. Need to contact so-and-so. Haven't heard about so-and-so, right? When I get up in the pulpit on a Sunday morning, our church is uh, like most churches, you know, everybody has their seat. I can almost close my eyes now and I can almost tell you where everybody sits, pretty much. I know who's in the back. I know who sits to my left. I know who sits to my right. The The seats never really change much. You know, we are creatures of habit, aren't we? Randy was sitting there last night and he's sitting there again. See? I know that that's what we're like. And I'm the same. When I sit in church, everybody knows roughly where Pastor Briggs sits. My wife plays the piano, so we've kind of got a seat down near the front. And I'm pretty much always there if I'm not in the pulpit. But I'm not just able to memorize where my members are in the congregation. I'm thinking about, we haven't seen so-and-so for a while. We haven't seen so-and-so for a while. I always go to the door at the end of our sermons uh, to shake hands with everybody. Now, that's not just a courtesy, though there is courtesy in that. I'm there because I want to see who all my church members are. Where are they? And I can tell the ones are doing well because they'll shake hands and they'll talk, they'll chat. And I can tell the ones who dodge and weave and get out of the church, they don't want to talk to the pastor. And I take a mental note of that. Why? Is it because I'm, I'm some kind of weirdo? Well, some people might say that. But the reality is I'm concerned for their spiritual well-being. How is their walk with God? How are they doing? I know the couples in our church whose marriages are in trouble. I know the young people in our church who's struggling with X, Y, and Z. Why? Because I'm in their life at a spiritual level. Because that's what I'm called to do. I'm called to find out, how's your walk with God? How are you doing? We regularly visit our congregation, and I ask, the con- I ask our church members pretty much three or four questions at the very outset. I say, well, tell me, how's your conscience? Are you struggling with anything in your conscience right now that you want to talk about? Now, they, they don't have to talk about it, of course, but it, sometimes they'll open up and say, Pastor, I, I was thinking about this at work the other day, and this has been troubling me, or uh, there's an issue going on with one of my family members. I'll ask them about uh, how their marriages are doing. I want to know, is the husband loving the wife? Or is there abuse going on? Big issue nowadays. I want to know, is the wife able to follow the leadership of her husband and do it well for the glory of God? Or is she married to a knucklehead? Because if she's married to a knucklehead, me and the knucklehead will have to have a chat. Many women suffer under terrible headship. And we haven't done well at addressing that in the Christian church. We'll talk about parenting. How's it going with the little ones? Mom's exhausted. She hasn't read the Bible for a week because she's just done. I understand. We've got, had four children. We, we know that. My wife was the same. We'll talk about church. I asked the congregation, have you any problems with me? Are you benefiting from the preaching? Are you any criticisms? I've learned more about the things they don't like about my preaching than ever the things I do, they do like about my preaching. And it's good for me to hear that because they're not looking at the finished article. And I want to grow, and my job is to communicate the truth to God's people. It's not to just dump theology on them. It's not to show that I am knowledgeable. It's to communicate Christ to them, that Christ might be formed in them, that they might grow up into the full maturity of Christ. And if I'm failing to do that, then I need to shut up and sit down and get someone in that can do it. 
But you see, brothers and sisters, this is why it's so important for the church to understand what the pastors are meant to be doing. Because when you understand what the pastors are meant to be doing, and, and you're supportive of that because you know this is the will of Christ for your soul, then here's the thing. It won't be hard for you then to say, I want to fulfill my duty to my pastors. I want to support my pastors. I want to have this kind of ministry in our church. And you see, that's what's going on here in this particular paragraph of the confession. Our forefathers recognized that if the church is going to be built, it will be built through the means that Christ gives to the church, which is faithful pastors rightly handling the Word of God. And when you get men in your midst who are rightly handling the Word of God and whose lives are backed up, who are backing up that reality, you're blessed. You're blessed. And you should want to support them, and you should want to help them, and you should want to fulfill your responsibilities to them. And so that brings us to consider then the duty of the congregation to their pastors. Notice how comprehensive the duty of the church is to its pastors. The churches to whom they minister must not only give them all due respect, but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability. There are two really important texts here that we need to, we need to dip into. First Timothy chapter 5. Turn there just for a moment. First Timothy chapter 5. Let's look at verse 17. Now, 1st and 2nd Timothy are epistles written to Paul's young prodigy, as it were, Timothy, who is in Ephesus, interestingly enough, and Paul is giving him instruction about how the church is supposed to order itself and what matters in the church. And you'll notice in 1st Timothy particularly, uh, Paul has already laid out for Timothy the importance of prayer, the role of men and women in the church. Uh, he speaks then of elders and deacons and of the gospel. He warns of apostasy. He calls him to take heed to his ministry, how to treat the old and the young and the widows. And then he comes to verse 17 of chapter 5, and he says to them, Here's how you're meant to relate to your pastors. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Now, there's a lot here that we need to think about. But the first thing I want you to notice here is that there are elders who rule well. What does that mean? There are elders who don't, right? You have elders who are good leaders, and you have elders who are not so good leaders. Every church, as much as possible, should have a plurality of elders, Every church, as much as possible, should seek to have more than one elder. When it comes to the whole subject of elders, when we look at Acts 20, we see that an elder is a pastor, is a bishop. A bishop is an elder, is a pastor, right? They're essentially synonymous terms. They simply describe for us slightly different elements of the role of those over whom, those who are put over the church by our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, we see that Timothy is reminded here of the importance then of distinguishing between elders who rule well and elders who don't. The ones who are ruling well, they are to be counted worthy of double honor. 
Now, what does the double honor mean? I think what a double honor really means here is that they're to receive the respect in terms of their person, and they're to receive the remuneration in terms of their calling. And notice the distinction that is made here, especially those who labor in the Word and doctrine. I think what it's really saying to us is this, that in an eldership, you're going to have two kinds of men. You're going to have the men who are set apart full-time for the preaching and teaching of the Word, and you're going to have the other men who sit on the elder board who are also leading a church but have got other vocations. We in our church call it vocational elders and non-vocational elders. That is to say, the elder who is full-time in the Word, that's his full-time vocation. The non-vocational elder, he's full-time. He's still a full-time elder in the sense he's an elder all the time, but he has another vocation. He doesn't get paid by the church. Now, what distinguishes those who are vocational and those who are non-vocational? It is the fact that those who are vocational, they give themselves all the time, constantly, to the Word and doctrine. And I think that gift and ability and education all play a factor in that reality. Who do you choose amongst you to be such men? And notice, they're to receive all due respect. That is to say that you're to have a regard for them in a comprehensive way. It's not necessarily the case that you're going to get to know them as well as you might get to know a non-vocational elder. It just depends on providence and time and dynamics. But the reality is that the church has a responsibility to take care particularly of those who are laboring in the Word and doctrine. And we see in verse 18 that clearly this is remuneration. The laborer is worthy of his wages. But notice, it doesn't mean that you can never, ever address sin in their life. And this is really important, I think. It does tell us that when it comes to the fact that people are not going to be always happy with the elders, accusations will arise. There has to be a judicious standard for which accusations are received. Two or three witnesses. That's simply the Old Testament law, uh, the standard for justice. But notice when it's established that an elder has sinned, notice it doesn't say sack him. That's interesting, isn't it? I think there are some sins that are disqualifying offenses for sure. Man commits adultery with a woman, he's out. It's over. He should not be in the ministry. He can't be trusted. Can't be trusted in his own marriage. Can't be trusted in the church. But I think that the elders can misspeak. I think the elders can be unkind. I think the elders could be inconsiderate. There's all sorts of pressures and we need to be told that sometimes. Brother, you just were thoughtless. You're right. Please forgive me. Brother, you were inconsiderate. Brother, you were neglectful. doesn't necessarily mean that you're to sack your elders, but you certainly shouldn't be afraid to rebuke them and have them addressed. Now, there is, there is a debate here as to whether they're to be addressed in the presence of the whole church or whether it's to be done within the eldership. Uh, the reality for us is it depends, I think, on what the nature of the sin is but, and how public the sin actually is. If it's just within the eldership, well, to me, you just deal with it in the eldership. If it's been done in front of the whole congregation, then I think you need to deal with it in front of the whole congregation. But the reality is here that what we've got is this respect for the elders is that we're to take care of them in every aspect. We're to be concerned for their, for their material well-being, and we're to be concerned for the upholding of their reputation and their character. When you say bad things about your elders behind their back, because they've said something you don't like, that's slander. That's divisive. Now, that doesn't mean your elders are necessarily right in everything, but here's what you do when you have a problem with your elder. You go and tell them. 
between you and him. Matthew 18 applies, right? I have no problem people come to me. People come to me and they say, Pastor, I have a problem with you. I don't want to talk to you about something. And one of the things that we as pastors must do is we must make ourselves as approachable as possible. We must make ourselves as open and make it as easy for our people to come to us, to correct us, as it would be for our children to approach us. That's so important in pastoral ministry. Men who are in ministry who are aloof and separate and, and, and have no connection with the congregation are not shepherding. They're not being like fathers or nursing mothers, as Paul speaks about in Thessalonians. We must make it as easy as possible for a church member to come up and say, Pastor, I have a problem with something you said from the pulpit, or Pastor, I have a problem with something that uh, you did in a particular context. We're not yet glorified either. We need that. So, there has to be this due respect for the material well-being, for the, for the reputation of your pastors. You should protect them. When someone comes to you with a complaint about your pastor, here's the first thing you should say. Have you told him? And if they haven't, zip. Don't want to hear it? Go and speak to him. Now, if you don't get satisfaction, come back to me and we'll both go. And we'll address the issue. But what you don't want to be is the person who goes around behind the pastor's back, always slandering, always suspicious, always cynical, always paranoid, always wondering, is the motive really what he says it is? Those kind of spirits are carnal. That's not love. Love thinks well. Love bears long. Love is willing to go and address the issue. And so our forefathers they tell us very clearly that there is to be this comprehensive respect for the pastors, their reputation, and then we get down to the brass tacks. Nobody in Scotland ever talks about this because it's about money, except me, because I'm in America, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. But this is what it's addressing, isn't it? It's addressing not just the, uh, the respect for their uh, character and reputation, but regard for their material support their material support. And notice how it's stated that we are to be those who, with all due respect, share with them from all their goods according to our ability. Just in case you think that our forefathers are making this stuff up, turn to Galatians chapter 6. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. The apostle is writing to the Galatian churches who are in danger of falling away from the, the, the gospel of grace and falling backwards into a Judaizing uh, works righteousness. He's been working through this. He's been exhorting them to be spiritual, to walk in the Spirit. He's exhorting them in chapter 6, verse 1, that if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, go and restore him, calling them to bear one another's burdens. And then in verse 6, we get this. Let him who is taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. 
Do you realize that sharing of your material things is a spiritual act? Sharing of your material goods with those who teach you the Word of God, those who are your pastors, is a material, is a spiritual act. It's an act of faithfulness to the Lord. It's not just a perfunctory, let's get him on the payroll and give him something in terms of his money. We're not like the world. This is the kingdom of God. We are the people of God. This is the church of Christ. And those who are benefiting from the ministry of the Word are to be those then who recognize the gift that God has given in a preacher or a pastor or a teacher and are committed to making sure that out of our material well-being, our pastor is going to be taken care of. It's a tragic indictment on the church when they have millions of dollars in buildings and their pastors are poorly paid. We have got it completely the wrong way around. Completely the wrong way around. And I don't know whether it's just the American phenomenon or the Western civilization phenomenon. When you go to other parts of the world, it's a very different dynamic. But there's a, there's a, there's a real carnality, isn't there, in the fact that look at our building. Oh, yeah, we haven't paid the pastor. There's something wrong with that. That's not spiritual. That's carnal. That's sowing to the flesh, not the spirit. And the, rea the reality for us is that we must be spiritually minded in this whole exercise, recognizing what we are actually doing is supporting a gift from Christ to us that we might grow in Christ, that we might value above all else our spiritual well-being and not our material well-being. This is a great challenge for the American church. It's a great challenge for all of us because we're all in this together. We are materialists in the American church because we're the wealthiest people on the face of the planet. We live, even those of us with an average income, we live like kings compared to parts of the world. But when it comes to the church, we're often bringing in then our worldliness instead of our spirituality. And here our forefathers are reminding us by way of this clear statement from Galatians that we are of, to use our goods according to our ability for what? That our pastors may have a comfortable supply. A comfortable supply. Now, I think that's a very important word. Not an extravagant supply. A number of years ago, and I don't say this story to make me look good because I struggle with this like everybody else. But a number of years ago, a man offered to buy me a, or, or to give me uh, a car that, in my judgment, was pretty flashy. It's a pretty flashy car. And I said to him, I already had a car. It was a smaller car. And I said to him, I said, brother, I really appreciate your kindness, and I don't want this to get between us. He was a millionaire. He was a very wealthy man. And he was very kind. I said to him, I don't want this to get between us, but I don't want that car. For the simple reason, I feel embarrassed driving around Sacramento in this car as the pastor of my congregation. Our congregation is pretty much blue-collar towards white-collar-ish, but we're not, we're not a, a really wealthy congregation. We don't have a lot of wealthy people in our church. We're definitely not a poor congregation either. We're not in a working-class district. We're eight blocks from the capital, but we don't have the salaries of all those politicians, all right? 
but the reality is, you see, we've got to be aware that as pastors as well, we have a responsibility, a responsibility to check our own hearts, a responsibility to make sure what is the average level of living in our congregation? The church has got the ability to keep us comfortable but not extravagant. And it's very interesting, when you look at Spurgeon's life, C.H. Spurgeon had probably the biggest congregation in Britain. There were 6,000 people in the tabernacle on a Sunday. They didn't have any musical instruments, by the way. They just sang a cappella. That must have been awesome. That must have been amazing, right? But Spurgeon, with 6,000 people in the city of London, there was a huge amount of money coming into that church. And he was getting paid at the time, they reckon, about 20,000 pounds, which back then was a lot of money, right? But when he died, you know how much his total estate was? 2,000 pounds. Now, he was in the Met Tab for about 30 years, and that congregation grew from a couple of hundred to 6,000 under his ministry. Yet when he died, he had 2,000 pounds. Now, when you look at his life, it's amazing. He trained 800 men for ministry. 800. I'll be happy if I get eight before I die. 800 just blows me away. He opened like five or six orphanages in London. And to this very day, Dr. Bernardo's is one of the orphanage societies in London. Bernardo was connected with Spurgeon back in Victorian England. It's very interesting. The amount of orphans that Spurgeon and his orphanages took care of. His wife had terrible health. She spent a lot of time in her bed. But you know what she started? A book ministry. A book ministry where they would send books to pastors all over Britain, writing letters. And she did it all from her bed. It's amazing, the industry of that woman. But here we see, you see, that a pastor was well paid. He was comfortable. But what he was able to do was ministry. Because here's the reality. We're taking none of it with us none of it with us. My father died 11 years ago, and I never forget going home to Scotland. I never forget when my mother, thankfully my father was in glory, and I preached his, 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 his funeral sermon, um, but I remember going into his wardrobe to clear out all his stuff, right? And my dad was old school, right? It didn't matter uh, when you saw him, usually shirt and tie suit, right? Especially on a Sunday. That was just, for him, that was the way it was. And I remember counting all his shirts were ironed in his wardrobe. And I took them all out, and I counted them just for fun. My mother was sitting. 77 shirts. I said to my mother, he can't even wear one a week. Before the end of the year, he's going to have to, that's a year and a half of shirts. And we joked. I said, if dad was back here now, I'd say to him, what are you doing with 77 shirts? But over the years, you know what it's like. We've all got stuff, haven't we? I got stuff. My wife wants me to get rid of t-shirts. That's where I've got to get cleared up, right? Since I came to California, I said, well, you wear is t-shirts, right? So I got more t-shirts than I ever will need, and I need to clear them out every so often. But my point is this. I realized we're just putting it all in black bags, and we're taking it to the thrift store, and it's all going away. You ain't taking it with you. So what are you doing with it? Are you investing it in the church and in the kingdom of God? Because that's the best investment. You know why? Let me tell you why. Your marriage is going to end. Sorry to tell you. 
I didn't come all the way to Las Vegas to discourage you, but it's a fact. When I do weddings, I remind the young couple, there is a day this day, after this day you get married, there's a day this is going to end. And they say, what? You're telling me about our marriage ending when it's just starting? Yes, it's about perspective. It's about perspective. Until death us do part. That's the one thing about Mormon doctrine I quite like, right? I'd love to be married to my wife for all eternity. She recently thinks that's a decent idea, but it took her about 30 years to get there. But it's not going to happen. There's going to come a day where I'm going to stand at her grave, she's going to stand at my grave, and it's going to be over. Your family isn't going to last forever. America's not going to last forever. I can say that to you as someone who is born British, right? The sun set a long time ago on our empire, and it's setting on yours too, ours now, because I'm an American, right? I am a citizen ruler, so you know, I do this whole business. But here's the reality, okay? America's going to pass. But you know what's never going to pass? You know what's going into eternity? You know what's going into the new heavens and the new earth? You know where you should be investing? The church. The church. It's the one institution, the new humanity of Christ, that's going into the future and going into eternal glory. So you want to be a good investor? You want to get the best bang for your buck? Invest in the church. Invest in the church. Because it's never going to end. It's going into eternal glory. Why would we want to invest in Apple? Well, for short term maybe. But long term, it's over for Apple. And who knows what's going to happen with Twitter right now, right? With Mr. Musk. It's going to be very interesting. But you see, when we think about investing in our churches, do we think then, well, what about investing in men for ministry? What about investing in men to preach the gospel? Men for training them up. Men for sending them out. Men for building the churches. I'll tell you the way that America is going to be changed by what we see in this room. You know one of the things I love about coming here to this context? And we have it in California too, the diversity. Look at us. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, we're all together. What unites us? Christ. He is the answer to America's problems. Churches established preaching the gospel is the answer to America's problems. For me, that's why I'm not leaving California. No matter what, I'm part of the Don't Leave California movement. Sorry, Randy, I know you left. But the reality is, the one thing that's going to change California is not electric cars. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Preaching Christ to every creature that some might get saved, churches might get established. And I tell you this, when Christians get made, the culture will change. When Christians come into existence and take seriously the things of God, the culture will change. The hope for America is the gospel and establishing biblically ordered churches. Hence the reason why these dear brothers are concerned for the churches in Las Vegas. I tell you this, if we could have 50 churches faithful to the gospel in Las Vegas, that would definitely make an impact that they could not ignore. You guys are in Nineveh, you know that, don't you? This is Nineveh, modern-day Nineveh, right? You guys are my heroes. 
When I think of coming here and I think of you guys preaching the gospel in this city, I'm like, this is wonderful. I actually wrote on my Facebook, I'm going to Sin City to preach the gospel this weekend. I can't wait. I get to go to Sin City. Once you've been to Vegas to preach the gospel, you can preach the gospel anywhere. Right? <laughs> this is it. This is as high as it goes for a guy like me. And Roller and you guys are doing it all the time. I bless God for that. So why would we not invest? Why would we not take our money and put it into the church to train men and train preachers and plant churches? When I was here the last time, there was the talk of the planting of the church down on the strip, and I was asking Rolo last night, how's that work going, and where's the work at? And I bless God that there's a church down there preaching the gospel, and it's growing to the glory of God. Now it's slow, it's hard, it's tough, just like Corey mentioned, there's no doubt about it. But there's investment in the kingdom. Pastors are to be looked after comfortably, but not extravagantly. For what reason? That they would not be entangled in secular matters. What does that mean? It just means that you're not having to get up at five o'clock and go to Walmart to work till seven o'clock in the evening, and then come home and look after your family, and then try to get your books out and your Bible open, and start to pray that you might have something to give to the people of God on the Lord's day. Now, don't misunderstand me. That may be the way it has to start, right? But as God starts to save, and God starts to build His church, you want to take gifted men and give them more opportunity to go deeper with God so that they might get better in the preaching so that the congregation might learn better and grow in Christ and mature and be strong in the Lord. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. You do realize that we are the recipients of 2,000 years of wisdom and learning. Yes, controversy and mess. The church has a lot of sin in the past. But the reality is, we have, the, we have the heritage of all of this for us. We are the wealthiest Christians, literature-wise, in the English-speaking world that there has ever been in the history of the church. Isn't that amazing? Many English Bibles are there. 500 years ago, when William Tyndale was being executed in Antwerp for translating the Bible, he didn't have the luxury that we have with the plethora of versions that we have. Some of you are Spanish speakers, right? That's your native tongue. You know that you don't have as much as we who have English have, but there's some great things happening in the Hispanic world where brothers are translating, sisters are working hard translating things into Spanish. Would to God that it just goes boom all over the Spanish-speaking world. Germany doesn't have as much. I was in Germany many times over the years, and they lost a lot. Why? Because of some character called Adolf Hitler, right? Civilizations rise, civilizations fall, literature gets lost, knowledge gets lost. You look at what's happening in China. You know, what's going to, you know what the possibilities are for China? That by 2030, there will be more Christians in China than card-carrying communists. That's not hard for God. And yet we need to get literature into China. We need to get the great theological works into China that the church would mature and understand the great truths of the Christian faith. Why? Because our faith is a historic faith. There was actually a time when God stepped into the world in Christ to accomplish redemption. 
And 2,000 years later, we have all of this at our disposal that we might know it and understand it to what end? That we might keep preaching Christ to the world and seeing churches established and sinners saved. You see, many years ago, in the 1980s, when I was in seminary at the end of the 1980s, a great revolution happened in this country of Romania. It was on the news every night. The people were out on the streets. They were waving their flags. And eventually, Ceausescu was taken down. He was actually, I remember on the BBC, he was taken out into a yard with his wife, and I remember they showed it on the TV. They shot him against the wall. The Romanian Revolution brought, began to affect the whole of Eastern Europe. You know what happened? The Iron Curtain came down. Do you think it's hard for God to take down the Iron Curtain? No, many of us have been praying for years for the gospel to go to Romania and Albania and East Germany and Bulgaria, and God eventually did it. Well, should it surprise us then that the bamboo curtain might come down? No, of course not. It will in God's time. When God is ready to change it, when God is ready to shift the nations, He'll do it. And the gospel will march forward and have greater impact. We've got to keep investing in the kingdom, investing in mission, investing in men preaching the word so that they're not entangled in secular affairs as much as possible. They can give themselves wholeheartedly to that which they're called to. And notice, it's very important to see what the confession goes on to say here, so that they can show hospitality to others. When you read the life of Martin Luther, it's very interesting. One of the things about Martin Luther's home, once he got married to Katie, was that their home was full all the time of people. He would be training men for ministry. They'd have people coming through, visiting preachers. And one of the most famous things about Martin Luther's home was his dinner table and his table talks. And Katie would be bringing out the food uh, the Germans would be round the table, and, and Luther would be waxing about some doctrine. Uh, not always I would necessarily agree with it all, but the reality is there he was, the gospel man, the man of justification by faith, and his house was packed with students and men for ministry, giving himself to hospitality. Interesting that in First Timothy, one of the qualifications for a pastor is that you're to be given to hospitality. And one of the things my wife and I have done over the years is to make it clear to people, our home is not just our home, it's your home, if you need it. You can come and you can get a room in our home as much as we can if, we, if we're not full, and you can get a meal, and you can be with us. Uh, and it's been great for my children to see uh, that our home is a haven for any traveler, for any needy soul. We had a young Mexican lad came to stay with us for three weeks, and he stayed for five years. And then I had the joy of doing his wedding because he married one of the girls in our church. His father was in prison, and his mom just couldn't handle it when he was about 17 or 18, so he came and he, he lived with us. And uh, we bless God for the opportunity to do that kind of ministry. What's another potato in the pot? What's another few French fries? What's another piece of fish? Nothing. The reality is that we can show hospitality. Well, here's the thing. Back in the time when our confession was written, if you were to go and stay in an inn, it was a dangerous thing. 
You get robbed by the highwaymen. You would get uh, into all sorts of difficulties in some of these inns in England. So uh, the church recognized, especially pastors who were maybe on the run from government authorities, where was the best place to hide? To hide in houses that other pastors were perhaps in. But it costs, right? It costs money to look after people. So the church is recognized. We need to make sure he's able to extend hospitality where he can for the work of the gospel. You read the life of John Bunyan, as I mentioned already. John Bunyan was a pastor in Bedford, but you know where he died? He died in London. He was down in London preaching. He got caught in a rainstorm, and he got a fever. He was so unable to walk, but he wanted to preach that they actually literally carried him into the pulpit across the top of the congregation, plonked him in the pulpit. He preached his sermon. They carried him out, and he died. That's why he's buried in London and not in Bedford. There's a statue of him in Bedford, but his grave is in Bunhill Fields in London. And he was receiving hospitality at one of his friends when he died. There are many stories of preachers traveling in the countryside of England when it was really difficult and always wet, and sometimes they never made it home. And so they die in the bed of one of their friends in another part of the country. Hospitality was part of their life. It should be part of our life as pastors. You as a church should want pastors. You shouldn't have pastors who are not hospitable because it's one of the qualifications for pastors that they're given to hospitality. But they need to be supported to do these things. You can't, at the end of the day, be like the Egyptians and ask them to make bricks with no straw, right? You don't want to be the church that's known as like, well, they have the spirit of the Egyptians. They expect their pastors to make bricks, but don't give them any straw, right? You want to look after your pastors. You want to take care of your pastors. And, and, and it's, the reason for this is quite simple. The law of nature tells us, right, that the worker is worthy of his wages. But more than that, the command of Christ tells us that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And that's about settled ministry where men need to be supported and sustained. And that's what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but I want you to very clearly see who is it that says you should support your pastors? Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, we saw it last night, didn't we? The head of the church the commander-in-chief who calls us to take care of his under-roars, as it were. The most prominent framer of the 1689 Confession was a man called Nehemiah Cox. He was acquainted with, if not a friend, of the great Puritan John Owen. And Cox, in an ordination sermon, said this to a congregation, "'You owe to your pastor great love, respect, honor for his work's sake. It's for his work's sake. It's the work that he does. And God requires that you make a due payment thereof. This our apostle often passed up with great earnestness, right? The apostle, if he didn't need the money, he wouldn't take the money. If he didn't need the support, he would pass it up. It wasn't that he wasn't entitled to it, it's just he chose not to take it. And then Cox goes on, he says, For in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, we see this. We beseech you, brothers, to know those who have the rule over you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. We're living in a day where pastoral ministry is challenging. Many men have left the ministry because of the challenges, particularly that COVID brought upon the church. We were very blessed to maintain our unity 
through the challenges of it at our church in Sacramento. But many are facing the challenges of it, and some of them leave the ministry because they can't afford to stay in the ministry. My dear brothers and sisters, don't let that be said of you. Don't let that be said of you. The church that cares for its pastors will enjoy the smile of its king and the blessing of Christ. The church that neglects its pastors will soon, I believe, find the Lord will remove the candlestick, and rightly so. And so let us take seriously in this day the duty of the church to its pastors to protect their reputation and respect them for their work's sake and to make sure that they are comfortably provided for in a material sense so that they can give themselves wholeheartedly to the work of the gospel. Because if you have those kind of pastors, you're going to be blessed and you're going to benefit and the church will prosper to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, when we think of Christ, your Son, as the head of the church, giving gifts to his church that the church might grow, we marvel that he takes weak, feeble men and makes them into instruments of his grace, raises them up and puts his words in their mouth that they might speak that your, might, your people might hear, and that your people might believe, be saved, and be transformed. We pray, Father, that in this day of crisis in many ways in churches regarding pastoral ministry, where there is a shortage of men, where there is a lack of men, where there are those who maybe are in leadership who should not be there, we ask, Lord, that you would raise up a generation of faithful shepherds, that you would give your people a heart to support them, to give them all due respect, to provide protection for their reputations and provision for their material benefit. That, Father, there would be many men who are faithful ministers of the gospel, even to the saving of many souls and the establishing of many churches in this land. Lord, Move, we pray, by your Spirit, even here in Las Vegas, right across Nevada, right across California, right across the United States, in a day when many, Lord, have their hearts failing them for fear. Visit us in the power of your Spirit to build your church and to save the lost and to bring glory and honor to your great name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.